This is Rabbi G, and welcome to Harvard God and Gen Z. The goal of this podcast is to discuss life's big questions with some of America's brightest young minds. We will discuss Harvard's continued sway on the imagination as the peak of success. We will discuss how to get there and what it is like when you do. We will then shift to discuss if and in what ways meaning and God are relevant features of Gen Z. What better place than Harvard for discussing these issues with the thought leaders of tomorrow? Welcome back, everybody. We have an exciting new episode here with Noah Reddick from Los Angeles, 23-year-old senior majoring in government. History and literature. History and literature. And just fresh off of a campaign, the campaign trail up in Maine. And uh, he'll tell us more about that as well. Welcome, Noah. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming. So tell me, Noah, where were you the day you found out you got into Harvard? What was that experience like? Oh, you know, it was a crazy day. So I was, you know, I, I had, I wasn't going to go to Harvard. I was, I had committed to going to U Chicago. I had already received my, uh, my, my clothing from my, my, my U Chicago sweater, my U Chicago hat. I was fully ready to go to U Chicago. Um, and then over the summer, like a month after a uh, month, like in July, right. Or end of Ju- in July, after a month after graduating high school, I was about to go to U Chicago. I was actually in Europe with a few friends. Um, I was in Amsterdam and I was at, having dinner with some friends and I got a call from, from Cambridge. And I was like, oh my God, I'm getting a call from Cambridge. I, I suspected maybe it was Harvard. I had stayed on the wait list, but I didn't think I would get in. Um, and I ran outside, I took the call, right? I ran outside, I missed the call, but I got a voicemail saying we have, we have an update about your application to Harvard. And I called them back and I wasn't able to get through to them for like a day, but I figured I, I was guessing that it was good news. And then finally I got a hold of them and they, they told me that I had gotten in. Amazing. And what did you do in high school you think that turned the tide in your favor? What do you think was your, some things you were involved in that perhaps uh, made you stand out? Yeah. So in high school, I was very passionate about history and about American politics. And I had actually, in right at the end of senior year of high school, I got the history prize. And that like each academic department gave out like an award like they would have an English award, math award, science award, and I got the history award in senior year. And that was a big surprise. I did not see that coming at all. And it was really, a, I was really just shocked and really honored to, to get that. And yeah. What does the was, history award entail? What, what is that about? That's just like for a student that, for a student that's shown a particular passion for history, that's, you know, taking a lot of history classes that's really excelled in that area that's applied themselves and just, you know, shown a real passion for it, I guess. And where does that passion for history come from? What, what, what is it about history that you find uh, so meaningful or interesting? I, you know, I just learning about, about other time periods, seeing how, um, seeing how, you know, learning, I think I really enjoyed sort of learning about the cast of characters from, from certain time periods and, and sort of reading people's reading sort of learning about all these people, learning about their beliefs, learning about uh, learning about sort of complicated figures in, in history. I think I found all that stuff really interesting. Has there ever been anything you've learned in history that's affected your 
the way you live your life today? Any insights or, or just kind of more of an interesting curiosity? You know, I'm sure it's affected the, my life as I live it. I've never really stopped to think. I've never really consciously, it's, I've never really consciously stopped to think about how it's affected how I live my life. I know it's affected my beliefs. I think that I, uh, I don't know, I took a lot out of learning about American, the rise of, uh, you know, American populism and American progressivism. And I think learning about those eras have definitely affected my, my beliefs. And going to Harvard, was it, has it been uh, an enlightening experience for you? Absolutely. <clears throat> you know, I, I think I've just met people from all different walks of life. And I feel like I've, uh, it's been enlightening for me sort of having to sort of constantly decide like who I want to spend time with, because who I spend time with, I think, affects who I am and, and reflects on who I am. And I think I, I feel like in high school, it was much easier to just sort of this man of being in a much smaller environment, it's much easier to just sort of find your friends. And there, there's, but when you have, when you have such a wide range of different people to choose from, like you do at Harvard, you have, you really forces you to make decisions about who you, who you most align with and who, who shares, you have to know what your values are, and then you have to find them in other people. And do you feel you do know what your values are? And if so, how did you figure them out? And where do you think they come from? I think I, I think I know what my values are. I think that they change from, I think, different situations. I think <clears throat> being in different situations forces me to, to shift my values slightly and sometimes prioritize some over, over others. And I've definitely been in situations, really, particularly recently, where I've had to choose sort of competing values. And I think, I think, that, I think that my, my friends bring that out in me. Can you share a little bit what you, what you mean by kind of letting certain values go and what would be a competing value system that yeah so I think that that I, I'm not going to say any any names here but I have some friends that I have I have I, in it, among the people I'm friends with at Harvard there are some I have some friends who share very different values and some believe in sort of this openness that you should always let people in like you should always sort of strive for inclusivity to the maximum always want to share things always be open sort of always sort of everything is everyone's that sort of mindset. I have some friends who have that mindset and I have other friends who much more value personal space and personal time value sort of having more of like a respect for personal privacy and for, for personal things. And I think I, I see both sides. And so sometimes I have to choose. Sometimes I, I want to be a more on the inclusive side and more on the open side, but sometimes that goes too far. And I, and I kind of see where my other friends are coming from. And I think, living in having to having to live with friends uh that i having to live with friends particularly over this past year who share those values on polar opposites it's forced me sometimes to have to make decisions that that uh where those two values compete and is there any way in your mind is it just a matter of taste you think or do you think there's a what do you mean like you know which values you align with is it just a matter of a person's taste or do you think it's more a product of just what they were told growing up um, where do you think these values actually come from? It's it's hard to say. I think it's a lot of how we were raised. I think shapes how we view things. And yeah, I think a lot of it is just how we were raised and the environments that we're used to being in. So in your mind, they're equally valid. It's just It's just a matter of how a person grew up and they each have perhaps their positive side. Uh, and it's ultimately about 
finding a balance between the two, I assume. It is. It is. I think that I, I think that, yeah, it is. I think that I used to have the mindset of, I just want to be as generous as possible every day, all day, every day. And I think that used to be my mindset, like always be generous, always just be air on the side of generosity. And I think that that's be, living with the, with the particular person that I live with this year has really caused me to rethink that a little bit. And it's caused me to think there actually are limits to generosity and you want to be generous, but never to the point where other people start to kind of take advantage of you or other people start to. At what point did you realize that, that did you have this powerful insight that ooh, doing kindness unbridled has a dark side to it? I think that like over the past year, I've had several instances where I tell my friends I'll, 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 I'll do something that is sort of, where like, I'm sort of being overly generous. And then I'll tell another friend about that. And they'll be like, no, why'd you do that? Like, you didn't have to give this person this thing. Like, you didn't have to let this person borrow your car. You didn't have to let this person stay in your house. You didn't have to. And I feel like I'm always being told that by other friends. And then it makes me rethink, huh, like maybe I should draw more of a red line. And I. What is the down? What is the downside in your mind? for not, I think the Why not just be generous? What's the problem? You because we all have limited resources, we all have limits to our time. And if you're trying, I think for me, if you're trying to make everyone happy and you're trying to just be generous to everyone, you end up leaving no one satisfied. And I think that that's a lesson I just have to keep telling myself over and over again. That's a very deep point. And I think this probably plays on all realms of life as well that that concept of balance and either po politics or family, it's always the uh. I would say that's probably the one theme that the Taurus discusses more often than not is that exact theme of what is that balance between what we call yeah. kindness and limitation and where that balance is obviously will change depending on circumstances, but it's obviously the, the golden mean that's always hardest to and, come by. And I just wanted just to give you another example of this type of balance that I've had to, that's been so tough for me lately is, you know, when I was living at home, I really want to see my friends and I really want to be around them. And especially because I'm now on the East coast for like five months, I value spending time with my friends and, and reconnecting with them. So I have that to balance with the fact that my family really doesn't want me seeing anyone when I'm at home and they don't want me interacting with anyone. And I want to both be a good family member and be a good friend. And sometimes those two feel like they're just completely at odds. hundred percent. And I think, you know, a lot of people discuss, if I were to ask people of what's their moral framework, many people will respond, oh, just to be empathetic or to be, um, be, don't hurt anybody else. But I think what you're bringing up is actually a very good point. Like empathy can lie in many, in many planes. You know, you can be empathetic for your parents, but then they're not empathetic for you and your needs. There's competing empathies here. And it's not so simple to just say, hey, just be empathetic because that's going to maybe leave nobody happy and everyone kind of struggling with, with what to do. So I, I just always kind of, I agree. Empathy is a, a core value for, to be a basis, a basics for, for being ethical, but I think morality is more complicated than that for, for exactly the reason you're saying that there's complicated situations in life. And what do you do? Is it your parents that you have to respect? They have to respect you and your autonomy. It's, these are all tough questions and there's just always factors to weigh different things to balance. 100%. Exactly. So speaking of your family, um, you grew up in Los Angeles, Los Angeles. Did you have a spiritual life growing up? Uh, did the concept of God ever come up in your family? Was it not spoken about? What was the concept of spirituality 
I don't like the word religion so much that has many connotations, but just kind of a spiritual life growing up. We'll start there. Yeah, I've definitely had a spiritual life in the sense that, you know, attending synagogue and, um, you know, moments of prayer in synagogue were definitely a part of my life growing up. And I don't think that in terms of like God, like God was not talked about much in my house, but it's definitely was, you know, going to synagogue and connecting with the Jewish community was definitely a huge part of my life. But I, it felt like Judaism for me felt very much about sort of the community and the values and a little bit less about like the religious doctrine that you're following. Right. And uh, I guess the, the broad word often uses tikkun olam, was that a central part? Yes, absolutely. And did you find that going to synagogue and you did mention you did pray a little bit? Was that meaningful at all for you in any way or just kind of a no, hard, it was really a hard thing to get through? No, it was really meaningful. And I mean, some of my maybe my most meaningful experiences praying haven't been in the synagogue. They've actually been when I was in Israel at the Western Wall. Um, I've been there. You're not, you're not alone on that one. I think that's a common. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Was, and was that surprising for you that you had an experience like that at the Western Wall? It is. It's, it always surprised. Well, I've been to the Western Wall a few times now. And every time I'm there, it always surprises me how much I'm really able to get into a spiritual mindset that I don't even expect going into it. But then I get there. And, you put words to that? I know it's hard to put into words, but any words you could use to describe like what it is you're feeling or thinking or what does it mean even to have a spiritual mindset in your mind? Yeah, I think that when I'm at the Western Wall, I have this sort of more of a feeling of self-reflection and uh, more sort of heightened awareness of how I can grow as an individual and my connection to definitely, I, I definitely feel more connected to God. I definitely feel more connected to the Jewish world and more connected to myself when I'm, when I'm there. Beautiful. I would maybe argue those are all one have the, all connected in many ways. And when you say connected to God, what does that mean to you? What did you always believe in God, by the way, or is that a, a more recent belief? And, and on what basis have you thought about the concept of God in your mind? Yeah, I think I've always believed in, in God. And I think that I think that I've always believed in God in the sense that I believe that there's there's I don't know, it's really it's a really this is really hard to, to put into words, but there's some force that's sort of pushing the world towards like there's some force that's pushing the world towards righteousness even if even if it's in very subtle ways or even if it's you know not doesn't always feel like it's there interesting can you give me an example of how you feel the world is progressing are you talking kind of in a more steven pinker type of way that the world is getting better as much as we're kind of down especially this week what the world looks like but overall violence is down more people are eating wealth has increased that there's kind of a trend there or is it something else that you have in mind yeah, no, I, well, I think, I think it's both that way and in a sort of more individual micro sense too, that just sort of right at the moments where I feel like, you know, sometimes I'm in moments where I just feel like things like really couldn't be getting any worse, like just in the, and then suddenly something good happens and it's like, wow, like that, those kind of moments. Interesting. So that's a, so your kind of, your belief in God is kind of in a very experiential sort of way not necessarily philosophical but just your day-to-day -day experiences and just moments where you're like wow that really worked out like better than i could have hoped and you kind of feel a certain sense that there's something beyond kind of with you in those moments yeah, I'd, say it's, I'd say it's more experiential i mean there are i in terms of like it's my philosophical belief in god i've never sort of 
I don't, I've never really dwell, dwelled in why I, I philosophically believe in God. Like what my, I don't really have a philosophical explanation for it. If you think about it now, can you think of one? When, when you say philosophical, you mean? Just a reason besides your experiences, maybe a reason why you in your mind, yeah, it makes sense to believe in something or. I just think that we is, I think is, is, as I mean, I think that humans need to have faith in something to live their lives. I think humans can't, you know, we can't go on. We, we, we can't, we can't go on day to day without having some larger thing that we believe in. And what, what makes you say that? Why do you think human beings require uh, a bigger picture or a higher being? Because I think we, otherwise we get caught up in just like the day to day nonsense and things that are really pretty petty and small end up seeming much bigger than they should be if we don't have a larger thing that we're looking at. So you're saying it just puts things in perspective on a consistent yeah, basis that, keep, that keeps us sane on some level. It, 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 it keeps us from just falling into pure cynicism. And have you seen a lot of that, that, that pure cynicism that, uh, you know, I, I find that among maybe uh, the younger generations, it's harder, it gets harder and harder maybe to believe in a, a bigger picture. And there's a lot of cynicism. Absolutely. There's so much, there's so much cynicism among people my age. And it really makes me sad how much cynicism there is and how much people, um, people sort of laugh at people that are uh, spiritual or faithful or, or idealistic or believe in stuff. What do you think the repercussions are for having a society that's so cynical? A lack of trust in one another, uh, a, a, an intention to quickly uh, assume bad intent, a tendency to assume that everyone has bad intentions and to assume that other people are out to get you. And, you know, it, it creates a world where we're always throwing each other under the bus on Twitter and saying, like, we're, we're just constantly maligning one another's motives. I think that's a big, big factor. So do you think actually helping people realize that there could be a big picture is actually could solve a lot of our current issues? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it could bring us to bring people together more. I think that like some of the part of the reasons that we're so divided as a country and, you know, both as a country and pe people are so divided all over the world is because people don't view that bigger picture. So it's just people see each other in people don't have people don't think that other people share their values because people aren't seeing the same big picture. How would you write the ship, so to speak? Is there a way to, what's the movement look like? How would you, you have some experience in politics. Um, is there a way to write the ship yeah, or is, think, it all, is it all grassroots? I think people, we have, we have to show people, we have to have, restore faith. And this is less of a spiritual thing, but this is just a similar vein of, of restoring faith. We need to restore faith in institutions and show people that institutions aren't evil and our history isn't just evil. And, you know, I was watching a movie the other day uh, that really just sort of struck me how different, uh, you know, society. I, I, have you heard of Frank Capra at all? No. He's an American filmmaker from like the 30s. And I was watching his film called Some uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And the amount of idealism in the film and how <clears throat> in the film there's this guy and he knows every like, he knows like the that he's like he goes to Washington and he's so excited by the history of every building there and he knows when every building was built and he's always like singing the Pledge of Allegiance and he's always like he's celebrating America's history. That kind of person today would be laughed at and would be seen as like night 
uh, idealistic and naive and but back then that was like a good thing it was good to be like proud of our history and it was good good to like celebrate in our history and i think we've lost that i think people today are so cynical that they just they see that kind of person and they laugh right but do you think that lack of trust in institutions is because you're saying on an individual level we've lost faith in a bigger picture so therefore that creates a mistrust in people which therefore creates well, mistrust institutions i think that our institutions have in a lot of ways have let us down and they have failed us. And I'm not saying necessarily that people's cynicism isn't justified. I think a lot of it is justified. I think a lot of like people's anger and, and cynicism is justified. When you say institution, what, what particular, what do you mean by that? What's, what is an institution that you're referring to when you say, you know, our government, our academia, our academia, our, our education, like people have a huge mistrust of, of, academic institutions right now and they have a huge mistrust i mean what we were talking about earlier people mistrust facts people mistrust people don't can't even agree on facts anymore because all of our institutions have just been become so um tarnished in people's eyes and and what's your solution for that or the rest of what's your how do we restore the faith that i guess i don't know if you're tying this together or not but you are you tying it together the fact that if we could restore some type of faith in a bigger picture, call it God, call it just that the world is good, that there's a, a journey to righteousness. If we could restore that faith, that could restore the institutional faith or is it a different uh, project? I think, I think that a lot of it is, I think a lot of it is more on a, on a micro level of, of, of how people interact with each other on a day-to-day -day basis. If, if people can, if, if people can, can see can look at each other as fellow human beings and, and have like respect for people from all different walks of life. If people can have this mutual respect. I think people will want to make our institutions work again. But I think people, people don't care about our institutions not working because they mistrust the people around them. And they don't like, people don't care about the people next to around them and next to them because they mistrust them. And so there's no incentive to want to make these institutions work in the first place. I think you're touching on a very deep point. And I think the sages agree with you largely. There's a debate in the Talmud. What is the most important line in the entire Torah? Rabbi Kiva says, to love, do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you, a.k.a. love your neighbor as yourself. That was Rabbi Kiva's line. But uh, the other sage named Ben Azai says, no, that's not the most important thing. I have something even more important than that. And that is to recognize that every human being was created in the image of God. And I think what you're sharing with us, perhaps, is tied into this idea of Ben Azai, that he understood that unless we recognize that everyone is created in the divine image and everyone has a greatness inside of them, there's a goodness inside everybody, and therefore I think that's what creates a society that can work together because there's that sense that everyone is good and, and has at least the ability to be trustworthy, even if we don't always act on it. So yeah, it seems like what you're touching is a very accurate picture of things that we need to trust each other. And the question is what to you is this concept of divine image, a good concept to help build that trust. Do we need something else? What do you think would work? Well, I think, yeah, I don't, I'm, you're saying apart from the idea of God, like what else? Or no, maybe, maybe that is, maybe you agree with that. Is that the, the, what we have to work on? Hey guys, everyone's creating the divine image, you know, respect each other. Or do you think there's some other idea we can tap into 
again, how do we restore that trust that you're saying is missing and tearing society apart? Yeah, you know, there was an idea that you shared a while ago during a, it was like a group, a group learning session. I think it was like an Aleph learning session. And you, you shared this idea that we like, we sort of build community by being willing to ask for help and by being willing to accept help from others. Um, and I think that could go a long way. If we, if, if people would be willing to be a little bit more humble and accept help from other people, I think that that could be being willing to rely on people around you. I think could do a lot to build our community. I hear that. Yeah. There's no question. There's that bootstrap mentality, especially here in the United States where it's a sign of weakness to, to ask for help. And I know, I, I know in the Jewish world, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, just every day, for example, we get together for a prayer service and we recognize that unless we have at least a certain number of people there, we can't function. We can't do it. We can't move forward. And that we need each other as a group to, to even just to do the basic thing of prayer. Uh, so yeah. I, agree with you. I think that's that's a powerful message. Yeah, I'm it, sure. I'm sure at Harvard, especially, it's. Would you say it's maybe a? It's hard to get people to admit that they need other people or need help sometimes. It, it really is. But you know, when, when I was in when, when when I was in Maine, when I was living in Maine, I was just so appreciative how how willing people were able to how willing people were to help you complete strangers. I had so many instances in Maine where I would rely on the help of complete strangers. And there's just, I think in places like, in places like Harvard, we lose, we lose that a little bit. Everyone feels a little bit more out for themselves and doesn't seem as willing to both ask for help and help other people. And I don't know, I think everyone could, everyone could learn by, by going to Maine and by going to Rome, <laughs> I think, I think it's, the values are just different. Sure. And, and what do you think the, the, the main values is just small town living, uh, just you're saying more humble? That's the. Yeah, more humble. Difference. And people don't look at you like you're crazy if you ask for help. People are like willing to help you. People are willing to drop what they're doing and, you know, make sure that you have what you need and make sure you're okay. And, and when, once you leave that, once you're back in some place like Harvard, people look at you like you're crazy if you just ask for help sometimes. Right. And you think that's just a product of of arrogance or feeling the need to be important? I think it's I think it's both of those. And how how do we stimulate humility? How do we stimulate humility? I think we have to, you know, I think we have to force people to force people we get encourage people to acknowledge that they don't know everything and that they we all have room to grow and we we all have room to improve and we're none of us are just like these perfect these perfect beings we all have areas where we need help and we all have areas where we we can we should ask for help from others 100% i couldn't agree with you more and what is it about the the society thing that's pushing against that that notion that we all have to feel that we're independent and perfect and you know i think that's it's hard to know exactly what about our society is, is pushes that idea, but there is a there is definitely a, a narrative that's created in our world that you know, being independent and being uh, self-made is the is the way to be. Sure. If you were to talk to one of your peers about these ideas, how would you start the conversation about either how hey you know you really should realize that there's a bigger picture out there. Call it God. Call it whatever you want to call it. Uh, how would you approach that? How would you share that idea with people? Well, I think I would ask people, 
to, I would just ask people, don't, don't you think that there's a value in having some faith in having some belief? Don't you think that there's value in believing in something that can't be empirically proved? I, I think I would just sort of ask that, that question. I think, I think that that question would really cause people to really think the question over. And do you think this is a question on people's minds or people are too busy to think about it? I think people are too busy to think about it and people are too, so many people I know are just too, uh, too practical to, to engage questions like this. They're too busy going about their everyday lives to stop and have these, have these kind of conversations. It doesn't seem, there's a, there's an idea of everything needing to be, you know, practical. And if it's, if it's not practical, why is it worth having the discussion in the first place? But, and you've seen yourself, obviously you've taken time to think about these questions that there is a value to, to putting time into this. Absolutely. What do you feel it's, it's given you to, to think about these questions and to have that at the forefront of your mind kind of on a consistent basis? Yeah, I think it's given me, as, as we were saying a little earlier, feeling a more perspective and a feeling of, you know, that, that at, the, at the end of the day, so much of the sort of smaller things that I think about are, are really, you know, petty things. And it's not worth getting caught up in, in so much that I may get caught up in and when you say so what is important to you what are the big picture things that are most important to you and how you manage your life the big yeah i think the i think the 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 really important things to me are always asking myself am i am i treating this person in a way that i'd want to be treated am i being honest to this person am i think that uh i think that loyalty is is really is really something i really value and you know not just not just throwing other people under the bus, um, which I think so many people are are so willing to do sometimes to throw throw each other under the bus or or cut ties with one another for really small reasons. And I try to always give people the benefit of the doubt. I try to always assume that that people are people are capable of making mistakes and improving. And I I really try not to cancel people. I think that's something I really I just don't believe in canceling people and unless real unless the person has done something that's that i really really believe makes them irredeemable and i think there's very very few instances of that beautiful and you're saying that these values that you keep go above these bigger picture values of how to how you treat people is more important than getting ahead in certain personal things or uh just kind of your your day-to-day grind it is and i it is and 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 i think it's uh I think I value more, way more than your average person. I value past experiences and holding on to those and remembering them and not just forgetting a past experience because it's the past. I think a lot of people don't care about stuff that happened two or three years ago. It, it feels irrelevant. It feels impractical. You know, why talk about something that happened three years ago? I, you know, I, I, a lot of people are just entirely future oriented and all they think about is where am I, where, where am I going to be in one year? Where am I going to be in two years? Where am I going to be in 10 years? I'm the opposite. I, I almost never think about where I'm going to be in 10 years. Maybe I should. Maybe that would be a little more practical. I spend way more time thinking and reflecting, where was I 10 years ago? How have I changed in the past 10 years? Where was I five years ago? How have I changed in the past five years? Because to me, that's a lot more interesting than, than, than thinking about where I want to be in 10 years. And maybe, maybe it's not practical, but that's how I approach a lot of my thoughts that's fantastic and, and you know that's just uh it's something we also say every day there's a special prayer we say in ashray 
where it's, we say, I, I need to remember all the goodness that has already happened and recognize how much, and again, that contextualizes life when you have a bigger picture and realize, wow, you know, okay, I had a bad day today, but how many good days did I have for the past few years and how much good has there been? And that, again, I think you're, what you're saying is a beautiful point. Uh, and again, it's about keeping the bigger picture in mind, not just living in a narrow framework of just what's in front of you but and what's ahead of you, but seeing the big picture of where you're going and where you've been. And that that's pretty awesome. And, and what are the techniques you use to kind of stay reflective and not get caught up in um, craziness, busyness? I think, well, sometimes I think I sort of just... I don't know if this is a technique. It's just something I, I, I often sometimes just kind of zone out. If, if, I, if there's too much kind of craziness happening in the moment or whatever, sometimes I'll just zone out and sort of reflect on, on some positive experience I've had. Uh, I'm not, not sure that's the most practical. Is that, is that zoning out or zoning in? I guess you could say it's either. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think I'm probably one of the only people who, you know, I'll, 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 I'll think like, okay, today is January 12th. Where was I January 12th, two years ago? Where was I January 12th, five years ago? And I, I value that. Like I value remembering and reflecting on past experiences because I think that's, that's you know, how you can, uh, that's for me the most useful way to approach future experiences. I just think too many people are willing to forget everything that happened more than a week ago. Right, right. And as uh, I think it was Aristotle, right, the reflective life, uh, a life that's not reflected upon is not worth living. And I think you definitely embodying that. And, and there's no question that this concept of what we call in Hebrew called cheshbon and nefesh or a spiritual accounting or an accounting of your life is something that we take seriously. and something that's you have to do uh, on a regular basis if you want to be successful uh, to see where you're going. In any case, well, no, thank you very much for sharing all these beautiful thoughts about uh, about, what, about the big picture, how you stay reflective, and hopefully uh, pro providing some, at least a direction of what we need to fix in this country that, unfortunately, I agree with you, has descended to a pretty intense degree of cynicism and lack of trust. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It was really such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.